Welcome to Murder Minute. On today's episode, the Catherine Knight murder. But first, your true crime headlines. Nine members of a fundamentalist Mormon community were killed when their vehicles were ambushed as they drove through the Sonoran Desert in Mexico near the Arizona border. The victims, three mothers and their children, were driving toward Arizona through the state of Sonora. Mexican officials said that they believed that the killers may have mistaken the family for members of a rival drug cartel. The victims, who were dual citizenships of the United States and Mexico, were part of a community of fundamentalist Mormons, who have lived in the region for more than a century, settling in Mexico after the United States outlawed polygamy. The three mothers and their children were traveling in a caravan through the sparsely populated desert when the attack occurred. Their cars were sprayed with bullets and then set on fire, killing the three mothers and six of their children, including eight-month-old twins. Seven more children were injured, including a 13-year-old boy who walked for six hours through the desert to help find help for his injured siblings. A Houston man on trial for the murder of his wife admitted that he shot her, but claims that he was sleepwalking at the time. 67-year-old Raymond Lazarine is on trial for the 2013 murder of his wife, Deborah. On the day that she was killed, Raymond Lazarine called his son and told him that he dreamed he shot his wife. When police arrived, they found Deborah Lazarine dead on her living room floor with six gunshot wounds. Raymond Lazarine was arrested and later told police that he thought that he had been dreaming when he fired six shots into his wife of 35 years. His attorneys are mounting a sleepwalking defense, arguing that Lazarine suffers from a medical condition and that the shooting was involuntary. Lazarine's son testified that his father had been under psychiatric care for more than a decade and that he had been prescribed psychotropic drugs, which he sometimes mixed with alcohol. Raymond Lazarine could face up to life in prison if convicted. A Florida man is facing his second trial for a 2010 quadruple murder after his first trial ended in a hung jury. 41-year-old Henry Segura is charged with the murder of his girlfriend, 27-year-old Brandy Peters, her six-year-old twin daughters, and a three-year-old son that the couple shared. Prosecutors plan to show that Segura committed the murders to avoid paying $20,000 in back child support. The defense believes that the attack was targeted and contend that Brandy Peters worked as a drug mule and had been skimming drugs from her loads. Another man, James Carlos Santos, claims to have orchestrated the hit on Peters. Santos invoked his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination at Segura's first trial and did not testify. That trial ended with a jury deadlocked 8-4 to in favor of acquittal. Santos is expected to testify at Segura's second trial, which is underway. Henry Segura faces the death penalty if convicted. Those are your true crime headlines. Up next, the Catherine Knight murder. But first, a quick break. Have you thought about talking to someone? 
but are unsure of where to start, it's time to get BetterHelp. BetterHelp makes it easy to connect with a licensed professional counselor, caring professionals specializing in the issues that you want to talk about, such as depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, trauma, anger, family conflicts, grief, self-esteem, and more. Join BetterHelp and get help at your own time and your own pace. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. You can schedule secure video and phone sessions or text your therapist worldwide and start communicating in under 24 hours. Anything you share is confidential. And if you're not happy with your counselor, you can request a new one at any time. It's a truly affordable option. And now, Murder Minute listeners get 10% off their first month with discount code MURDERMINUTE. If you've been wanting to talk, you can get started now. Go to betterhelp.com slash murderminute. Simply fill out the questionnaire and get matched with a counselor that you'll love. That's betterhelp.com slash murderminute. Ladies, if you've been looking for that perfect fit, one that will lift you up and one that will last, look no further. Third Love is here to support you. Third Love knows that finding the perfect bra isn't just about size. It's about shape. And Third Love offers more than 80 bra sizes, including their signature half-cup sizes. Third Love uses lightweight, super-thin memory foam cups that mold to your shape. No more slipping straps, no more itchy labels, no more awkward dressing room experiences. Skip the trip and find your perfect fit with Third Love's online Fit Finder quiz. Over 14 million women have taken the quiz to date. It's fun and takes less than a minute to complete. Third Love will help you identify your breast size and shape and find styles that fit your body. My style is the plunge, and this is the best fitting bra I have ever owned. And every customer has 60 days to wear it, wash it, and put it to the test. And if you don't love Third Love, you can return it, and Third Love will wash it and donate your bra to a woman in need. Returns and exchanges are free and easy. And so far, Third Love has donated over $15 million in bras. Third Love knows that there's a perfect bra for everyone. So right now, they're offering our listeners 15% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com minute and find your perfect fitting bra. That's 15% off your first purchase at thirdlove.com slash minute. Welcome back to Murder Minute. Today, the story of Catherine Knight. Aberdeen, Australia, the small town in the upper Hunter region of New South Wales, 
barely made headlines before February 29, 2000, the day one of the most grotesque murders in history took place inside a family home. At the time of his death, John Charles Thomas Price, a 45-year-old known as Pricey to close friends, had been making good money as a local miner for nearly two decades. He was father to three children, two of whom lived with him and his girlfriend of five years, Catherine Knight. John grew up in Aberdeen, where he was well-liked and knew Knight had a reputation for violence. Even so, he fell hard for the mother and grandmother who worked at a local meatpacking plant. Shortly after a flirtatious evening at a nightclub, John and Knight began dating. Not long after that, she moved in with him. As the honeymoon period began to diminish, Knight's aggressive behaviors proved to be more than rumors. At one point, she tried to coerce John into marrying her by stealing his money to purchase her own engagement ring. When she didn't get her way, Knight's behaviors escalated. She knew John had taken expired first aid kits out of the trash at his workplace, so she took video footage of the kits, submitted them to his boss, and reported him for stealing. Though he hadn't actually done anything wrong, this brought about the downfall of his 17-year position, a career he had worked hard for and took pride in. He said enough is enough and kicked her out. But like many abusive relationships, the pull was strong. Maybe he feared what she might do if he didn't take her back or figured he could change her, focusing on the times she wasn't abusive. Whatever the reasons, within a few months, they were back together, arguing frequently, but together. Knight wanted full control of his home, and John wouldn't allow that. At that point, she started accusing John's children of molesting her kids. She confided in co-workers that she wanted to kill John. It's not uncommon for someone to say things like, I could just kill someone, without actually meaning it. Maybe that's why no one seemed alarmed enough to report what she had said to authorities. For a while, John thought he had a handle on Knight's violent spurts, that he could work around them. Knight's ex-husband, David Stranford Kellett, said, Sometimes she just snaps like a biscuit. If John could manage to prevent or minimize those snaps, perhaps the couple could manage. But... By 1999, he was concerned enough to meet with her ex to talk about her erratic behavior. He was so scared he was almost shaking, David later said, according to a Canadian Children's Rights Council report. He was really scared. Knight even said to John in front of one of his friends, You'll never get me out of this house. I'll do you in first. Finally, John found the increasing threat serious enough to go to the police. On February 29, 2000, the day that would come to haunt Australia, during an intense argument, Knight stabbed John. He tried to file a restraining order, or apprehended violence order, as it's called in Australia. When police told him the processing might take a few weeks, John told numerous people, including co-workers and neighbors, that if he disappeared or didn't show up for work, that she had probably killed him. That evening, John woke up to find Knight standing in his bedroom. At first, they had sex. Maybe it seemed like the sort of makeup romp he'd grown accustomed to, or something to cave into in order to keep her rages at bay. 
Rumor did have it that Knight was known to punish at least one ex for not fulfilling her sexual appetite. Soon after, once John fell back to sleep, she attacked him with a knife. He ran from her, fighting for his life and an escape, but it was too late and he was already too injured. Later, an autopsy would show 37 stab wounds in John's body. The only blessing, if there could even be one in this scenario, is that John wasn't likely conscious or alive during what happened next. Those details wouldn't be revealed until the next day, and much of it would be hidden from the public for good, given the grotesque nature. When John failed to appear at his new job, one of his colleagues phoned the police. General Deputies Officer Scott Matthews received the call. In the documentary Crimes That Shook Australia, Matthews said he knew John to be a reliable man, someone who was usually first to arrive at work and last to go home, so it was completely out of character for him to not show up without so much as a phone call. Matthews drove to John's home with then-Sergeant Graham Furlonger, who figured they'd find John passed out or asleep. But when they arrived, they spotted blood on the door. Through the window, they glimpsed what appeared to be a bunched-up curtain hanging down in the archway and decided to break in. Entering the back door of the house, they came upon that hanging material, still unsure what it was. When Matthews pushed it aside to walk through, he noticed a cold sensation all over his left arm. Looking down, he saw it was covered in blood. Had he injured himself on the way in? Getting a clearer view, the truth set in, along with a broader scene so horrific it would scar investigators. The hanging material was the flesh of a human, intact, as though the insides had been scooped out. The body appeared to be that of a male, and they quickly assumed right— they were remains of the late John Charles Thomas Price. Up ahead on the ground sat a bloody torso with no head. They were stunned, never having seen anything this brutal, but they had to keep going. Peering into the living room, they noticed more remains. With pistols in hand, in case the killer remained in the home, the policemen stepped into the kitchen, where they noticed a large covered pot on the stove and two plates of food on a table. Something so normal and domestic-looking amid this bloodbath of a crime scene. It was as though someone interrupted a thoughtfully planned meal to bludgeon poor John. They moved from room to room, searching for anyone else who might be present, dead or alive. Upstairs, they heard snoring sounds coming from a bedroom. Inside, they found 49-year-old Catherine Mary Knight, John's on-and-off girlfriend in a deep sleep. They tried to wake her, but she seemed to have taken a bunch of sleeping pills. They called for an ambulance and continued to search the home, finding no one else. With Knight in custody, hospitalized, and largely out of it due to the effects of the drugs she'd taken, investigators knew they wouldn't be interviewing her for a few days. In the meantime, a forensics team analyzed the scene. Investigator Peter Musio arrived to the home expecting and finding it incredibly gruesome. Oddly, though, he observed a pleasant aroma, not that of death or decay. It smelled more like a stew a loved one might make. Blood spatters painted the house, gruesome signs of an intense and violent struggle as John tried to escape. 
The blood evidence showed that he nearly made it out alive, though he likely would have died later anyway. Spatters from the stab wounds continued all the way to the door. Blood on the floor revealed that John's head was in place when his skin was removed, and drops of blood formed a trail where Knight had carried his head into the kitchen and to the stove. The meat on the plates, surrounded by vegetables, came from John's gluteus maximus muscles, his rear end. It had been sliced into five slabs and baked like steaks in the oven. Thankfully, the plate seemed untouched. No apparent bites had been taken. They seemed more like the killer's trophies. As for who they were intended for, well, that only added to the cruelty. Place cards beside the plates showed the names of two of John's children. By the time the lid on the pot on the stovetop was lifted, investigators were horrified, but not surprised by its contents. Inside floated the decapitated head of John Price. When it came time to question Knight, five days after the murder, she claimed she had no memory of the events or how John had died. In a recorded interview, a detective told Knight he had reason to believe she may be the person responsible for John's death and asked if she could tell him anything about the events. I don't know anything, she replied. The last thing I remember was going out for tea with my daughters and the kids coming home. She also mentioned having watched TV. Initially, Knight said she recalled having sex with John before they both fell asleep and said that amnesia had blocked out the rest. And while she did accept responsibility for his death, she wouldn't take any blame. Instead, she pointed the finger at John, saying he had abused her, just like her other partners had. No one found her memory lapse claims credible, given how much planning had gone into it all. And she seemed to be alert enough to make decisions through that murderous night. Bank records showed that she had withdrawn cash from an ATM between the stabbing and the skinning. After interviewing Knight's three ex-partners, investigators were confident that she wasn't the perpetual victim she made herself out to be, but the perpetrator. All three men relayed horrible memories of domestic abuse at her hand. Over time with Knight, they grew to fear for their lives. Just after marrying one of the men, she reportedly stabbed him because he didn't have sex with her enough times the first night. When he left her, she placed her baby on train tracks. Peter Laylor, who sat in court during Knight's trial and later wrote the book Bloodstain about the case, told the Sydney Morning Herald he couldn't fathom, quote, how on earth this woman could have done that incredibly grotesque act to another human being. She had raised four kids, owned her own home, had a job, owned a car. She didn't have horns growing out of her head, which you wanted because you don't want someone who looks so normal. You want them to put a face mask on. Layla and others concluded that borderline personality disorder and intense childhood abuse fueled her crimes, suggesting that John's murder was a culmination of a long, deep cycle of abuse. Sandra Lee, who wrote another book about the case, Beyond Bad, had another take, that Knight's behaviors were all about arrogance, power, and revenge, because Knight thought John was ending the relationship. It wasn't enough to kill him, she told the Herald. She had to defile his body, sully his memory. She wanted to annihilate him. She was sending a message about who had power, who had control. And she was saying to his kids, this is your lasting memory of your father. Borderline personality disorder can be marked by inappropriate, intense anger. 
so commonly it's been coined borderline rage. Research published in the Journal of Abnormal Psychology showed a link between feeling rejected and rage in people with BPD. Could the sense that John was leaving her for good cause Knight so much anger that literally butchering the man she supposedly loved made sense to her? Knight exhibited other BPD symptoms too, a pattern of unstable relationships, impulsive and risky behaviors, severe mood swings, but any type of care likely would have been needed long ago for any hope of management or prevention. Knight alleged that her parents took turns beating her and her siblings. A plank of wood hung in the family's kitchen as a reminder of potential punishment. She also said she was sexually abused by her brothers as a child. School records show she wasn't a good student and dropped out of school at age 16, that she was essentially illiterate. Her only aspirations, according to those who knew her, was to work in the meatpacking business. Some people believe she was psychopathic and that her passion for that work went way too far. That she honed her skills and delighted, both in the work and in watching her colleagues butcher away for years before cruelly ending the life of John Price. She was fascinated by violence. At her trial, which started around a year after the murder, Justice O'Keefe said she sat there appearing small, looking straight ahead and without emotion, showing no reactions to evidence or witness statements. And despite agreeing that she was responsible for John's death to investigators early on, she pled not guilty. As evidence mounted against her, she pivoted again, changing her plea to guilty. Concerned that she would later file for an appeal, claiming she hadn't been of sane mind when she pled guilty, O'Keefe sought another psychiatrist's opinion, who concluded what others had, that Knight was sane and her behaviors were equally sinister and calculated. Seemingly in response, Knight tried to act insane, screaming and flailing her body about before everyone in court. The tantrum didn't convince anyone. Catherine Knight became the first woman in Australia to be sentenced to life in prison without any chance for parole. John Price's loved ones cheered in response to the verdict and sentence. Nothing could bring the hardworking friend who loved a good beer, a good laugh, and a smoke back, or make up for their loss, especially for his children. But in the end, they at least felt legal justice was done. This has been Murder Minute. For true crime anytime, download the Murder Minute app or follow us on Instagram at Murder Minute. For exclusive content and early access, find the show on Himalaya. <laughs>